Today is the last Sunday in the Easter season. I think this will be the, the last Sunday we have the, the white uh, stole on the cross. Next Sunday is Pentecost. And the Sunday after that is known as Trinity Sunday. And we will be continuing in John's Gospel uh, on these remaining Sundays. Today we're going to uh, wrap up our Easter series by continuing in John chapter 15. And looking at it as a, a text in which the, the resurrection is anticipated, but not not fully understood. When I, I think about Easter and uh, pivotal, pivotal moments of insight or, or uh, moments that have shaped my life in pretty profound ways, I, I think of the, first, the very first church I served as a transition pastor. Before I started transition ministry, I had served as uh, an installed pastor for about 20 years. And in 20 years, you have a lot of conversations and you think you see a lot of things that uh, you'll probably uh, see and, and uh, not uh, be surprised by other things coming down the pike. But uh, I, I settled into this new church. I, uh, Monday morning, I unpacked my books and put them on the shelf and put a few pictures up on the wall. And uh, the next day, Tuesday, I was in there starting to you know do all my uh, uh, magnificent work, and the secretary uh, secretary buzzed me and said, there's a church member here that would like to, to meet you, and I thought, well, that's wonderful, you know, these people are so friendly, they're just turning up to greet the pastor, and so uh, the lady came in, and she said, Hi, my name's so-and-so, and I said, well, I'm Pastor Paul, it's nice to meet you, and that was my contribution to the conversation after that. Uh, I, I said nothing more because it really wasn't so much to get acquainted, but to make an announcement. Uh, and she, she said, uh, I'm a, a member of your church. I, I love this church. I've been part of this church all my life. It, uh, it's really important to me, and I'm a, uh, I'm a significant contributor to the uh, finances of the church. But I want you to know, I want you to know this about me, that I am sensibly religious. I think... I think a little goes a long way. So that if, if you don't see me, except at the funerals of my friends and Christmas and Easter, you should not assume that there is something amiss. You should not assume that I need a visit. Uh, but if, uh, if I need something from you, I will let you know. And I hope you enjoy it here. And she left. That was it. And so I, I sat down and I kind of, you know, I looked at the wall for about a half hour. And I, I thought, that lady takes the cake. You know, I have just, I have never heard anyone that, uh, that bold to just come in and, and school the, the pastor on what, what sensible Christianity is. I mean, I'd, I'd sort of had the impression that Christianity is foolishness. Uh, Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. But um, here was someone who, who came in and explained to me that someone who was sensibly religious would be able to fit Christmas and Easter into their lives <laughs> in such a way that 
it made sense for their lives, that it was a good thing to have this in their lives. It, uh, it went well. And, and I thought, you know, this person is in a league of her own. But as I thought about that, and as I keep going back to that over the years, I've changed my view on that. I think, I think she's maybe the LeBron James of the league. Or, uh, but that for the most part, most North American churchgoers take the same basic approach to Christianity. And, you know, they might, they might show up every Sunday. Uh, they, might, they might even read their Bibles and, and pray. But their fundamental assumption is that they will decide uh, for themselves what it, is, what it is about Christianity that's sensible and fits into their lives. So that Christianity is something that fits in to their story. I'm not talking about you folks, of course, but uh, the, um, <laughs> that's, that's our take on it, that we, we have our lives, we are living our lives, and, and we have a particular story that we are living out, and Christianity fits into it, and, and maybe in very important ways, but the premise is that I fit Christianity into my sense of where I'm going and what what, what makes sense for me in living my life. And this, uh, this also struck me in, in, uh, in related ways. As I pondered this, one of the phenomena that I've observed uh, over the last 20 years anyway is that often, often it falls to me, uh, for example, to lead confirmation classes where young people, they, they hit their uh, early teens for, uh, and... There is a, sometimes an expectation, a custom that, well, when you hit that age, then you make profession of faith. And I'm not speaking against any of this. Uh, but what I've observed is, uh, in more recent years, that the young people who, who are in the process of making profession of faith know the Bible stories, but they don't know the Bible story. What do I mean by that? For example... Young, young people know, they know about Noah and the ark and the flood, and they, they know about Moses and the Israelites and Pharaoh and the Red Sea, and, and they know about David and Goliath, and they know about Daniel and the lion's den, and, and all of these stories, of course, very edifying, and, and, and they know certainly about Christmas and Easter. But what, what has been vexing, and it's, it's not their fault, it's our fault, is that so many of them... Though they know about Noah and Moses, they don't know which order they appear in. Or they know about Daniel and the lion's den, and they know about David and Goliath, but they don't know if David or Daniel is first. And, it's, and they really don't see much connection between the stories. And, and often, deep down, when you have honest conversation, there is this big question, you know, so what? So what? You know, it, well, if you know if you're thrown in a lion's den, that's, you know if God might deliver you, well, that could be important. But in terms of how all of this connects to becoming part of a uh, an organization, so what? The Bible, of course, tells a story, and in that way, and it's really unique among the the religious texts of the world. It's not a collection 
of uh, valuable sayings or even a collection of, of valuable, in, infallible sayings. It tells a story from you know, the creation to consummation, to new creation. And the challenge is to figure out how do I fit into this story? Or, in, in the case of a lot of young people, they don't even realize that that Christianity is a call to fit into, into God's story rather than to fit God into their stories. So if you try to fit all of those stories into your story, it's sort of, well, some of them might help, some of them might not. So what? It's my story that matters, and I think they've learned that from us. One of the, uh, one of the people who gives good expression to that, if I can get my buzzer here, there it goes. This is um, a comment by Christopher Wright. Uh, he, is, he is the director of the Langham Partnership, which was uh, started by John Stott to train pastors and church leaders. But in, a, in his uh, book, Here Are Your Gods, he writes, many Christians are simply living in the world story and trying to make the Bible somehow relevant to that. That is, they shape all their assumptions and decisions along the same lines that the rest of the people around us in the world do, but try to add a dose of Bible gloss by applying Bible verses here and there. We sincerely try to apply the Bible to my life, which sounds fine, but actually assumes that my life is the center of reality to which the Bible somehow has to be fitted. In our text from John chapter 15, the vine and the branches, we're continuing that um, today. Vince gave us a, a wonderful introduction to, to, this, to John 15, the vine and the branches. He really did all the heavy lifting. So today I, I want us to step back and see how the vine and the branches fits into the big story because it is, uh, it is a pivotal moment really in preparing the disciples to take their place in, in God's story. Uh, what's this story about? One place where you can get a little overview of, of God's big story is Isaiah chapter 5, 1 and 2. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to quote part of it. Uh, Vince mentioned this in his sermon. Uh, Isaiah, 5, Isaiah 5 starts out, I will sing about the one I love a song about my loved one's vineyard. That's the prophet singing about God. God is the one that he loves, and God has a vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. And as the passage unfolds, the Lord says, uh, now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove the hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant that he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. What's the story 
that that fits into. It's essentially the, the story of the Bible which could be expressed in this way that the, the creator God in his love for a, a fallen race decided to, to choose and call and gather a people to bless this lost and broken world. God called a people. He called Abraham uh, after the flood, generations after the flood, and said, up from this people, I will bless all the world. And that's the, that's the story that's unfolded and elaborated. Israel is uh, planted as, a, the people of Israel are planted as a vine, as it were, in the land of Palestine to be a sign to the rest of the world, to be a, a, a pointer to blessing. And if you read the descriptions, for example, of Israel's call in Deuteronomy, uh, people will go through Palestine and they will see Israel and they will ask, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of God do these people have? They must have a wonderful God. Look at the just and righteous laws that uh, direct the lives of these people. They must have an extraordinarily wonderful God uh, to, uh, to call together a people like this. So Israel was planted in the promised land to bless the world. And the vine with the, the, uh, the fruit of the vine is a symbol of blessing. It is a symbol of joy. Psalm 104, God gives these things to humankind, including wine to cheer and gladden the heart. Israel is God's vine. Israel is there to cause the world to rejoice in the creator and redeemer. But of course, they fail in their mission. But the story doesn't end there. God isn't finished with Israel. God is going to make a new beginning in Israel and expand the, uh, the context of Israel. So in John chapter 15, verse 12, this takes up where we left off last Sunday. Jesus says, This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. And pause in the reading here for a moment. Um, the, the disciples find themselves at, at the threshold of the pivotal moment in history. Uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross and beyond the cross from the empty tomb to rise again. And in the passage we've been working at, uh, which really starts in John 13, uh, between John 13 and John 17, uh, you begin at the Lord's Supper and you end with his intercessory prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's going to happen. And as you read through this section, they don't get it. He's telling them things and, some, and they don't understand. In fact, there's a place where Jesus, when he washes the disciples' feet, he says, you don't understand what I'm doing now. 
You'll, you'll understand later. And in John 16, he says to them, a little while you won't see me anymore, and a little while you'll see me again. The disciples say, what, what does that mean? And they don't get an answer that satisfies them. So that this, this entire passage is given to people who at the moment they are given it, don't really get it. But Jesus says, I'm telling you now, I'm telling you now, and you will understand later, and when you understand later, the fact that I've told you now uh, will strengthen your faith. They're, they're at a critical moment in history. Jesus is preparing them. That's what good leaders do. Good leaders don't just take it all and say, I'll handle it, I'll handle everything, I'll be here, you can always depend on me. Jesus knew that his leadership was to prepare, to prepare the vine to go out and bless the world. And that he, you know, his role uh, would take him elsewhere, but he prepared them. He also, as, as we'll see in a moment, prepares them for the, the hard part. So we'll read that and then we'll say a few more words about blessing the world. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Amen. like to, um, to make one initial observation about this, this scenario in which Jesus speaks to his disciples uh, at a place where they don't understand things, to encourage them in the uh, unfolding of, of the plan of God. John, as, as we've seen from time to time, loves double meanings. Uh, John, John likes to use expressions that are open to, to more than one understanding, all of which are intended. So uh, on uh, Trinity Sunday, Vince will be uh, speaking from John 3. Uh, unless, unless someone is born again, and that word again also means from above. And people say, oh, well, which one is it? Well, it's really both. But, or there is the uh, saying about the lifting up of the Son of Man. If the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people unto himself. Lifted up means exalted. How is he exalted? He's lifted up on the cross, humiliated. So John loves these double meanings. And here is, here is a situation where the disciples are listening and they're hearing things that they don't understand. They hear, uh, a little while and you will see me no more, a little while you'll see me. 
And we, we can read that and we, under, we, we get that part of the story. We can, we can read it in hindsight and, and know what they were missing and, and what they would find out. But it's also meant for us. It's also meant for us. We don't see the Lord now. In a little while, we will see him. The last, the last book of the Bible is also by John. How does it end? Uh, I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. So be ready. Uh, and there's also uh, so many things that we don't understand. So many things that happen and people want to know, how, how can your God allow this? How can, if Christ is Lord, how do these things happen in the world? There are so many things that we don't understand. But walking by faith means hearing the Lord's word and, and being willing to live in this, this tension of not understanding fully, but in the life of faith, trusting that uh, God, is, God is working his story toward its conclusion. There is in, in our uh, text some, some, some of the indications that the disciples, the, the, the twelve, the apostles, are, they are being entrusted with the God's mission, with God's story. Um, and, and one of those is the, uh, the reference to friends. He says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. And we, we can read that, uh, and it, that is encouraging and edifying uh, at the face of it. But when Jesus says, I'm calling you friends now, he's, he's making a point, he's alluding to something very significant in, in, the, in God's big story that lets them know that, that these apostles have been given a very special role, a very special place, that they are, uh, they are taking up the mantle that was, was given to Israel and carrying it forward. And that's simply in the reference to being called friends. Uh, two people in the Old Testament are named God's friends. First one is Abraham. He's not the first to be named the friend of God. But Abraham in Isaiah 41 is, uh, is re referred to as Abraham, my friend. God is reminding the children of Israel where they come from. And he says, you know, remember Abraham, my friend. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, King Jehoshaphat is praying for God's revival and God's blessing on the people, and, and in Jehoshaphat's prayer, he remembers that uh, they are descendants of Abraham, the friend of God. And James quotes James chapter 2, verse 23, where he's, he's quoting from Genesis first. He says, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he is also called the friend of God. Abraham is the friend of God. Moses is... Uh, identified kind of indirectly as the friend of God. In Exodus um, at, the, at Mount Sinai, it says, uh, God spoke with Moses. Moses was unique in that he spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And here is Jesus saying, 
I no longer call you slaves. I no longer call, call you servants. I call you friends because I tell you everything I've heard from the Father. We're talking face to face. So the, the disciples are put in this same situation as Moses and Abraham, the bearers of God's story. Um, they, are, they are going to be the fruitful vine that blesses the nations. Notice also that in the, uh, just I'll wrap it up with this. Um, in this part, Jesus carries the, the vine and branches metaphor one step further than the initial treatment. So in, in the first part, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. You have to abide in me, and then you will bear much fruit. So in the first part, the vine is there, uh, the branches are deep into the vine, and because they are in connection with the vine, with Christ, as, as Vince reminded us, uh, significantly through prayer, they are fruitful. Uh, when, when I watched the, the sermon, I, especially the part about prayer, I was reminded of a, a little church I go to in the evening, couple times a month. I go to a, a Hispanic church uh, twice when I have the opportunity. It's a little over an hour from here, but it's, everything's in Spanish, so it's partly it's just me learning and trying to keep something that I've mostly lost. But when, when you go into this church for their evening service at 6 o'clock, you go into the sanctuary, if, uh, if you're not the first one there, if you come in and other people are there, they're all kneeling at their chairs. They're all praying. And people come in and they go to their chairs and they kneel and they pray. And they, they get up and maybe they'll sit next to somebody and, and whisper or something like that. But, uh, and if you look on their notice board, you know, service Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday evening, Thursday evening, those meetings, those are prayer meetings. And once a month, Wednesday night from 6 to midnight is prayer time. And that's a day of fasting. And there's, there's something pretty, uh, at least for me, uh, there is something kind of uh, visceral about going in and, and people are praying, kneeling. I, and I've wondered, you know, what, what would happen if the congregation came in here and, uh, you know, at what, 10 after... And all, and, and all the praise team and all the worship leaders are just down here praying. And people say, oh, well, <laughs> let's go back out. We don't want to interfere with that. We're, it might even make people feel a little uneasy. Yeah. What was it you used to tell, tell kids, you know, be quiet in church, people are sleeping. But people, <laughs> be quiet, people are praying, you know. We, so, and I'm not saying that should happen, I'm just you know, wondering what that would be like, whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. It's another culture, and that's something that, that I find very positive. Prayer, prayer is really powerful. But to get back to the, the point, prayer and bearing much fruit, what's added? What's added in the continuation of the narrative? And that your fruit should remain. Your fruit should remain. Think about the story that you've worked out for yourself. What's going to be the lasting impact of the story that you've worked out for yourself? Is it, is it going to shape the world for generations to come? 
Will, will, uh, will your life uh, that you've planned for yourself turn out to be some sort of uh, perpetual memorial for the betterment of the world? It would be, it would be wonderful. Uh, I, I can think of nothing uh, more, more important, nothing that uh, human heart longs for uh, in, in a world where we are taken away by death than that our lives should count for something for all eternity, that it would matter that we were here. And, I, and most of us might work out our stories in our minds such that, well, we hope somebody remembers us. But if you join God's mission, if, if you are chosen as Christ, Christ chose Israel, Christ chooses the church. I've chosen you and I've appointed you to go. <laughs> There's a twist. We were planted as a vine, now we're supposed to go. It's kind of a mixed metaphor. He sends us so that we might go and bear fruit and that our fruit might remain. If you want to be part of something that will uh, impact the world for good for all eternity, if you, are, if you are part of the church, if you are part of this body that is chosen and appointed and sent, we have the assurance that our fruit will remain. I'll remind, when I read this, I'm reminded of the, the last words of uh, Psalm 90, the prayer of Moses, the man of God, uh, also the man who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses leads the ch children of Israel for 40 years in the desert till they all die. Uh, and they just wander around. Um, and Moses gets to see the land of Israel from, you know, Mount Nebo far away, and he dies. God buries him. Psalm 90 is, is meant to be understood as Moses' reflection on the significance of, of that generation, his career, and it's kind of a somber song, you know, it's it paraphrased, Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Such a cheery thing. Um, How does it end? Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. May, uh, may your work appear to our children and establish the work of our hands. Now, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. The only thing they built was a tabernacle where God met with his people face to face. And Moses prays, let let the work of our hands endure. Let our lives count for something for all eternity. If you align your story with God's story, that's, that's where your story ends. And so I want to close with a, another, a final word from Chris Wright. Living as Bible people is not just a matter of applying the Bible to my life. Rather, it is the other way around. We should ask, how can I apply my life, my little life in the here and now of this generation into the great story of the Bible? How can I live in such a way as to fit into this story, by, to participate in what God is doing and to prepare for all he plans for the future?
the, uh, the starting point of the answer and the ending point of the answer is this command I give you, love one another as Christ has loved you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the, the awesome mystery of our creation and for the, uh, the greater mystery of your everlasting love, that you should set your love upon us from, in Christ from the foundation of the world, and that you should uh, grant us the privilege of glimpsing the glory of your purposes. We live, uh, we, we live in the space where we do not see what is unfolding, but we live in this space that you've created for faith through the resurrection of our Savior. And so we pray that you would help us to continue to walk by faith and to do so in the confidence that as the Apostle Paul said, reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.